welcome to Primordial Tao, Present Tao, a podcast about all things Taoism. Our conversations and interviews will discuss ancient and modern Taoist wisdom teachings, spiritual practices, seasonal longevity and healing traditions, relationship guidance, and profound insights on walking an authentic and meaningful path, however you choose to walk it. Welcome home to the ocean of Tao. So if you're doing your 49 days and you become like an antenna of coherence for whatever your skill set is, whatever you're practicing, whatever you're training, on that subtle ontology level, you're now inviting all beings who come into being and have come into being through that practice and perhaps come to profound skillfulness or maybe more importantly, profound realization through that practice. Now you're on team training, team coherence, if it's Tai Chi or martial arts or what I say, juggling beanbags. Welcome to Primordial Tao Present Tao. This is episode 12, Why 49 Days of Committed Spiritual Practice Matters. Welcome to the show, Mike. This is your show. <laughs> it's our show. Our show. Welcome our show. back to the show, Robbie. <laughs> um, that's a weird start. <laughs> uh, hey, Mike, how's it going? I'm well. How are you? Yeah. Second podcast of the day. We're on a roll here. Yep. <laughs> Rack them and stack them. <laughs> Rack them and stack So this is an interesting podcast, probably a little bit more for our advanced practitioners, one people that have a practice and, you know, are kind of on the path, hmm. maybe on the canoe rowing towards a certain direction. So 49 days of committed spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess some traditions or all traditions would call this somewhat of a rite of passage. Uh, I think rite of passage is a good way to frame it in, in the sense that, I mean, rite, um, it's something that's within your society. Uh, rites of passage bring up what's called a liminal experience, which is um, my, my favorite metaphor for a liminal experience is imagine that you're afraid of heights and you're afraid of water and your life coach, friend, men's group, whatever women's group says, we're going to go and we're going to jump off a diving board today. So imagine what it's like to be standing at a, you know, whatever big pool and it's got a ladder and a diving board and imagine you're climbing the ladder. Now who's climbing the ladder? I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of water. So imagine yourself. I can just see myself, you know, my, my sphincters are tight and I'm trying to shakily grab on each rung of the ladder and pick up my legs to put my foot down. I'm going to keep going. Well, I like the cartoon analogy, how, you know, how like the teeth are, teeth are chattering, yeah. and knees are clanking. Yeah. And <laughs> so all, all, all the kidney stuff, all the bones and teeth, you know, as we climb the ladder, then we get out onto the diving board and, you know, we're shakily walking out but proverbial tightrope, even if it's a couple of feet across. And then you get to the edge of the, the, the diving board. And then it's jump 
Or it's, hey, what if I get it down to my hands and knees, turn around, grab onto the diving board, hang off my fingertips to get, you know, four feet closer to the water. So at least I'm taking the height part down. Mm -hmm. And then eventually either I jump off the diving board or I let go of the diving board. So this is the weird question or, or, or thing to, to bring your awareness to. Is the person who's holding on the same person who lets go and flies and jumps into the water? That's a very good question. Because on some level, like that letting go process would be a letting go of those conditions. Because right. I could just get back down, you know, I don't have to jump. I can climb back onto the diving board, crawl, gripping white knuckles all the way back to the ladder and shimmy down the ladder. <laughs> I can't do it. And if you can, you're just not ready. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. You're just not ready. But the one who's standing there or hanging off your fingertips is the one who's still hanging on to what was. The one who jumps off, let's go, is the one who needs to become uh, other or else or more or less or the, the transformation. And that's, that's really the, I guess I get my favorite image for rite of passage is it could be four days of, you know, fasting. It could be this, it could be that. But once you make the commitment and you dive in, you know, metaphorically or literally, now you're in that, that liminal state, that flow of finding out, finding out, finding out, facing the challenge, becoming the one who can face the challenge, becoming the one who can get through the, I don't want to, what if this, maybe I should, oh my God, I'll probably like hurt myself if I keep going, I better have an excuse, a reason, a, you know, and we keep playing this out. And that's life, that's meditation, that's relationship, that's getting through a degree, that's anything that says, here's a sequence of things, beginning to end. You either are the one who can move through this and move beyond, or you're the one who's going to stop, or you're the one who's not ready, or you're the one who doesn't even want to start. And there's, again, no right or wrong. But in spiritual practice, you know, we're, we're all kind of consumers or shoppers at the beginning. You know, and it makes sense. Try this, try that, see what works. Same with relationship, especially nowadays. You know, it's not like we're not that long ago, you'd be in an arranged marriage. And then the liminal part would be, okay, well, it looks like we're stuck together. <laughs> you know, so now at least we can kind of shop around for maybe a decade to get, get a sense of who we are, what we like, what we're willing to, to navigate in every way, professionally, intimately, you know, in the sense of all those relationship opportunities. And then we commit to something. Now, whether or not that, say, relationship or job or whatever, you know, is what carries you on in some special, specific way to the rest of, through the rest of your life, to the end of your life or not, is yet to be seen. But in, until you've committed to at least the course of that, um, you're not really able to go into the rite of passage part. Because the passage is, I commit until I find out. Nice. So can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Have you ever trained for anything in the sense of like a test or a, a competition or uh, say a really challenging fitness goal or? Yeah. Bunch of things. Um, well, test shows up first and foremost. Uh, I, what kind of training? Well, it'd be like studying. Uh, somebody, you uh, know, you're talking yeah, physical? Yeah, well, yeah, training. Not with a goal in mind. Okay. No. Mostly just for health and fitness and mm -hmm. 
I guess in my younger days, it was just looking a certain way. Right. So, uh, this is something I bring up, uh, when I'm training trainers or sometimes I'm talking to patients, let's look at the three words. There's movement, there's exercise, and there's, there's training. If you and I were to decide we're going to get up every morning and jog five kilometers, uh, or five miles or whatever, how long do you think it would take before doing that was actually just the way we woke up? wouldn't hurt the next day, your legs would be fine, you know, your, your body has adapted to that, that kind of a run every morning. I'm going to go with the common answer, which is 21 days. You know, right, so in whatever, whatever the number is, it, it's the transition between I'm doing some exercise, and that exercise is to run this long. So in a way, I'm kind of training, but also I'm just sort of, you know, me and my friends are going for a run. So let's just call that organized exercise. And over a while, it's no longer exercise because you're not exercising muscles. You're just doing the thing you do every day. So now your exercise has turned into movement. And believe me, movement's one of the most important things you can have in your life. If it's running, if it's Qigong, Tai Chi, martial arts, skiing, swimming, I don't know, ecstatic dance, hanging upside down, doing anything you can do. So when we have movement in our life, there's that right? There's flow. There's all the benefit of that for, for our, our health and our mindset and our, our state of being. And then there's, you know, things change in life, you know, circumstances change, we age, other things, like you said, you want to look a certain way. And then we like, you know what, movement's great. But if I'm going to change something in the structure of how my body works or how my mind works, I'm going to have to make it do hard things, different things. That's exercise. You exercise a, a muscle by picking up heavy things, the muscle will get bigger. Right? You, you really train neuroplasticity and problem solving, your, your mind will function as if it's kind of bigger, which is in a way true. Now, if I want to train though, and I mean train so that I can compete for a, say a world record or something, or train because I, I'm going to climb Mount Everest. So now I have to be able to carry 80 pounds, you know, 3,000 feet of elevation a day for this many days in a row and, you know, whatever it is. Now the rest of my life has turned in a way towards supporting my training. You know, so maybe I have to eat a certain way and not eat certain things, drink certain things, or else that's against my training. And if mm -hmm. I'm training, I'm against anything that's against my training because training Right. Right. So once, once we shift that, that, that mindset, that, that reality of, oh yeah, I'll just start to do a little more of this, a little less of that to no, <laughs> yes, no, yes, clear period of time, measurable outcome, result, check. I am now trained, not only at whatever you're training to do, but at training itself. I love training. I love it. Luckily, I met really well-trained uh, teachers when I, when I was a teenager. And, you know, there's, let's do a hundred days of standing meditation. Let's do a thousand days of med standing meditation. Let's do a hundred days of this really difficult martial arts form or this weapon or this thing. So every day for a hundred days or a thousand days, you're doing this thing. And you also have a journal. And you also have ways to assess your progress and your precision. And that's a tradition in Chinese martial arts. You want to do something? Well, if you haven't done a hundred days of it, you really haven't done it. 
you've just sort of gotten to know it. It's, you know, a casual kind of friend instead of uh, an intimate ally. Nice. Right? So in a lot of traditions, there's a, uh, say, 100 days, 1,000 days, or depending on the kind of retreat you're doing, uh, is there's a 49-day thing. And part of that is a reflection of... Um, some Buddhist uh, lore, you could say. The Buddha, after running around with sadhus and, you know, fighting off the delusions and illusions, went to sit under the Bodhi tree, I think, for 49 days and became awakened or enlightened. I'm not a Buddhist, so I think I'm just kind of, hopefully I'm stating that as correctly as I can. <clears throat> In uh, more Tibetan practice, which comes from a shamanic bone tradition before it was a Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they have this understanding that when you die, there's 49 days between the moment your body dies and when you actually leave the world. Right, right Where yeah. you kind of recapitulate stuff, maybe haunt your friends and re rearrange their fridge magnets to kind of leave <laughs> fun messages for... Play funny songs on the radio. <laughs> or whatever you can do, which makes for great TV, I guess. Um, and there, there's a few kind of Taoist analogs to that. Uh, and I'm sure there's lots of other traditions that they do that. And you could say it's based on the, the kind of like seven times seven. I'm not going to get a numerology. That's not really a thing. I'm, I'm not a big fan of causality. But um, let's say that there's a way of framing a practice that has seven layers and each layer has seven layers. And the way we do it in the modern world is seven weeks, 49 days, right? And each week has a context and each day has a, a you could say a let's just say another context and then like a fractal kind of thing it spirals in or kind of uh flowers outward or you know all, all the other poetic ways of talking about it but sure. having that 49 days of training not of just i'm gonna get up and move i'm gonna get up and exercise i'm going to train i'm going to get up on that diving board every day I'm going to crawl out to the end of it and see if I can challenge whatever my self might be, especially given the previous podcast we just recorded, which depending on the listener may have been listening to that months ago or never listened to it, but we just did that like 15 minutes ago. So yeah. we're still in that kind of like, whoa, kind of Nekong place, Nedan place, or, or kind of spiritual alchemy place. So when we want to to change the nature of our experience, our existence, who is the one meditating. If you want to change something, you have to do it a bit liminally, a bit beyond the predictive mundane experience. So let's say you decided that you were going to do a, you know, a 49 day uh, practice. And I would encourage people to just maybe if you grab a piece of paper, maybe people use their, you know, device or whatever to, to make notes. What would you want week one, two, three, four, five, six, seven to be about? You know, based on your culture or your paradigm that if you train in a tradition or, you know, something that ends in ism or something, is there seven things? Like I, I think of yoga, there's like seven chakras, you know, so maybe you could do a chakra per week, you know, or uh, one thing I did once was uh, a week of yin, week of yang, and then a week for each of the five elements, right? So it's just, just to give the left brain kind of way of organizing your diving board. And then you can take your, you know, take that idea and then say, okay, well, what I do on Monday, because Monday's, you know, in our culture, it's this day, or thank God it's Friday, or, you know, hump day Wednesday, or, you know, you can kind of have fun with 
the the way you organize it to contextualize each day so that you have this rolling either unraveling or perhaps uh restoring progress and process and flow it's predictable it's consistent it's challenging and depending on you know if you're doing it with a group of people that have a a way of doing this or if you're kind of doing it on your own then you can design that rite of passage as a passage mm -hmm. but as a spiral right and this comes from some pretty old traditions that have done it this way always uh well i mean like i said there's a lot a lot of things that seem a lot of traditions that seem to hold 49 days as as a, a you could call it a, a kind of boundary you know, mm -hmm. between one world and the other, one version of your experience of existence and another, and that would be definitely true around dying and then leaving the the world kind of gradually over 49 days, right? Because in, in meditation, a part of this is kind of the death of the conditioned ego. Mm -hmm. So when I was, uh, the way this kind of came into my life, when I was 24, I'd been training with uh, two different teachers, one in Japanese sword fighting and Zen training, and the other more Chinese martial arts, the, what people call internal, external, and uh, as well as the, some Taoist practice we call, nowadays we call Nagong. Uh, with that teacher, I didn't really get into the Taoist alchemy or the kind of spiritual embryo stuff. We just trained like the body, the breath, the sitting, and we'd actually done with, uh, with him, his name's Eric Tuttle, he's one of the most phenomenal teachers in the world. And I was 18 years old when we did this, which imagine you're 18 and you decide to commit to an hour long seated meditation practice with, with like a lot of breath work and postural stuff and movement before and uh, the whole thing for 10 months. You know, just like 300 days. 10 months? That's like... 300 days, let's say. Wow. And you committed to this when you were 18. Mm -hmm. And it actually kind of saved my life in a way. I was a bit of a punk. <laughs> so I wanted to fight everybody. Mm. Um, and I think he sort of noticed that in me and he invited me like, why don't you come and do, do this thing and, you know, here, make this bench and like, here's the practice and this is why we stare at the wall and this is how your mind works and, you know, come every day and sit and do this. And um, the memory that first comes to mind for some reason as I'm reflecting on this, speaking of it right now, is this one guy kept falling asleep and snoring, you know, and you had to just move through the, wah, wah, why is someone so snoring, you know, and, and you know, to, to like just stay at the edge of the diving board. And at 18, there was something in a part of me, which was like social life, you know, boy, girl stuff. The whole thing was like, Know, no drugs, no this, no that. You want to just be vegetarian? Like the whole thing was just, you want, you want a liminal experience? You want to write a passage? Do that. So I trained with him almost every day for about seven years. And at that point, he had said, because of what I was interested in learning, uh, he said, well, here's some people you can train with on the West Coast of Canada. Here's some other people. And we, I trained in with some, one of, uh, with a guy named Jesse Glover, Bruce Lee's first student uh, in, in a, kind of Wing Chun and a bunch of other stuff. So I was just on, on this kind of like, and now I'm, I'm on the sort of off into the world as, as the proverbial kind of monastic seeker kind of kid or whatever, martial arts kid. And I, you know, kind of went out looking for stuff. And he had said, you know, one other thing you could do, especially with respect to meditation, is to maybe go and find a place to just go and do this thing. And, you know, you could do 100 days or, you know, depending on, you know, 
that you could do different days but he said you know that cycle of seven and seven seems to be a thing and you know with respect to like how much money you're gonna either be spending or not you know making and in the sense i didn't really have a bank account because i was a university student martial artist who <laughs> didn't have a lot of time to like work because i was training all the time mm -hmm. i tried to find that that kind of balance point and that's kind of what we came up with is well i'll do a 49 days as a hermit in the middle of nowhere more or less in the Sutter guy's hermit cabin that he had built in 1972 i did this in i guess it'd be 90 92 i think um that's what i did is i went and into the forest and sat in this cabin and I dragged up enough food to last, you know, a couple of months. And I did four hours a day of seated practice, four hours a day of like martial arts, you know, conditioning and stuff like that. I had to dig the side of a hill out a little bit to make a flat spot to, to do like forms and stuff. So that, that was fun. Yeah. And then by, by the end of that, um, and because the person who had built it, you know, 20 years before I, you know, got there, obviously, uh, he had a martial arts uh, Tai Chi Qigong studio in, in that city. And uh, he kept saying, well, you know, let me know when you're ready. Come down to the guy who lives, you know, on the land below that. And some students would love to come up and meet you. So after about week seven, when I was done the 49 days, I, I allowed some people or invited some people to come up and train with me, mostly because they could bring me food and, you know, maybe give me some money because I had to <laughs> eventually go and find a place to live and find a job. Um, th that happened, but I stayed for just under 12 weeks and it was life changing. And a few years later, uh, Eric Tuttle, the man who I trained with, uh, cause I'd gone off to study tactical combatives and knife and stick fighting and all this other stuff and had developed kind of my own kind of approach to the hand to hand stuff. So Eric had invited me to go back across the country and teach a seminar, um, where he was and, uh, it's a weird thing to say because it sounds like I'm kind of beating my chest, but um, he had said two things. One, wow, you know, with the people I've trained, you know, in the sense of like tactical violence, you've really taken this, you know, because I had three more years of training uh, and all that stuff to, to a, a level that he was very impressed with. So I was like, you know, in the sense of martial arts teacher, father, son kind of dynamic, finally having that moment of like, you know, I have succeeded in the man dance of showing up and, you know, getting some acknowledgement from that. And we were doing some Qigong and some other stuff together uh, with his students in the park. And after the first time we had done that, he came up to me and said, wow, you've really bled into the scrolls. And I kind of had this, like, you know, dogs tilt their head when you're trying to talk to them. And I had that little dog head tilt, like, huh? Yeah. And he said, well, you know, all these forms, they're, they're, they're kind of like a scroll, you know, an ancient thing. And there's the calligraphy and the this and the that. And you can learn so much of them from the outside in, but until you've gone off on your own and you're not following another person, because I'd followed him doing these things for years, gone off on my own in the middle of nowhere and did my thing every day for, you know, well over 49 days. Um, what he was commenting on is I had come to a place where I was doing those exercises from the inside out. And that was life-changing in itself, regardless of the form or whether or not it had some potency in the world about, you know, Kung Fu stuff or whatever. It was a profound realization that y your teacher can only do so much for you from the outside in and corrections and stories and inspiration and whatever until you actually go and do the thing in the only way that only, or in the way that only you will do it ever in the universe as yourself through your practice for the practice, but for yourself as well.
you know, you haven't accomplished that or, you know, had that experience or become that. And that's just a thing. And there was other people that I, I had known in, in uh, martial arts in Qigong and other things that I had met um, between leaving uh, training with Eric and then going to do the 49 days. I was uh, doing demonstrations at big like international competitions and stuff. And then I went and did that thing and then, you know, went back to train other things. And when I was coming back to demonstrate again, other teachers that had known me, like, where have you been? Oh my God, what did you do? Like, did you go to China or something? And it's like, no, I just went to live in a cabin and train like all day. And they're just like, damn. Right. So, so how, how long after your training with Eric did, uh, like you're starting and then you went into the 49 days, like how much time was that between the meeting and the first 49 days? Before, when I left Ontario and came to BC. So yeah, I trained with Eric on in Ontario, but then I came to BC and then, uh, I don't know how many weeks or about a month and a half after that, I went up into the forest. But during that period of time, uh, between arriving in BC and then going into the forest, uh, it's a funny story, but I ended up doing this big demonstration in front of a whole bunch of, uh, at a martial arts competition. And uh, I guess I, I moved well enough that they wanted me to do that and that they invited me to kind of go to the next one and actually judge people in, in those styles and stuff. So I was getting to know the community and I was kind of like falling through the rabbit hole of good luck because now I actually got to meet some other really like way higher level teachers, old, old people like men and women from China who, you know, trained and they were like in their seventies and eighties. And I'm like, oh my God, I just found like the Shangri-La of martial arts in Qigong by accident in a way. But again, just those colleagues and people that I had met, um, before I went away for the 49 days plus <laughs> and then coming back and doing the other things that a lot of them were just like, what did you do? It's like, imagine, you know, somebody who, who sings and plays guitar and they're busking and then you don't see them for a few weeks and then they come back and they're busking again. And now they sound like, you know, they're a professional musician right. or something. That was sort of the context of it. Mm -hmm. And this might it sounds like I'm bragging, but I'm actually just talking about the, the kind of wondrous experience of realizing that you have to invest so much in the liminal part of training, the beyond what you know, to bleed into the scrolls and then find other people who say that's your, what you're doing there is clearly what it was meant to be, the way it's meant to be done by you. And you can always see that in things like martial arts and Qigong forms when a person's doing the thing that they're either doing it because they're trying to remember how to get it right or they're getting it beyond right because they're just in, in in the enthrallment of practice and beingness and connection and sensation and skillfulness. Right. Coming back to that play. Yeah. Like right. you really, really play. Yeah. I mean, but you gotta, you gotta play the way people who train play. Mm-hmm. So it's when we like a little two-year-old, uh, three or four-month-old puppy sort of slamming around with other puppies, banging into things with big floppy ears and feet, you know, ah, and then like a four-year-old wolf. <clears throat> like those two things play, but they look very different when they're playing. Well, I would go as like a ballet dancer. Like you see a ballet dancer on the on the screen, and uh, or you see a ballet dancer on uh, on the stage, and you're like, wow, look at that grace, but you don't know that maybe she takes off her little shoes, like there's probably a point where her like toes were bleeding because she was training so hard, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we got to bleed into the scrolls in a way. And when it comes to things like Qigong meditation, um, inner practices and stuff like that, what's going on isn't obvious on the outside when you're learning it. It isn't obvious on the outside because how do you demonstrate 
<laughs> meditation, right? <laughs> <laughs> Notice the, <laughs> all right. So, so there's this kind of like weird little kind of bardo, like kind of boundary between what, what you can learn from the outside and, and show your teacher and what you can learn on the inside and show anyone. And then what happens on the inside for you when you're so grounded in the kind of imminence of practice and familiarity and nuance and consistency. And that's why journaling is so important because it kind of guides your kind of, I don't know, better and, and less effective parts of practice towards the most efficient kind of way that each of us individually needs to practice. You know, and this conversation is, I mean, hopefully clearly for people who are committed to practice. And I, I can't not have the side joke of committed like crazy person, because you have to be a little bit crazy wisdom to commit like eight hours a day, as an example, for a couple of months, if not more, to transcend the, I don't know, the inertia of just day-to-day -day life, sitting in chairs. Nowadays, it's all computers and scrolling and screens. And back then, I don't even think we had cell phones. You know, so so the, the, the challenge we face in 2024 is way different than the challenges we faced in, say, 1992. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, but that that's the game is like, well, got to find a way to get up on that diving board with respect to the 2024 diving board of, you know, the ladders we're climbing and the conditions we're going to have to transcend and move through and move beyond to actually get to that place. Cause then that the momentum, it, it's like the training starts training itself. Right. It's like that whole, what was that Newton's law? An object in rest stays at motion or at rest an object in motion kind of stays in motion, mm -hmm. but to like, kind of move that proverbial snowball down the hill. Yeah. It takes, well, in this case, 49 days, right? Yeah, well, that's one way to do it. I mean, it takes your whole life too, but I think it's like uh, anything. Imagine, you know, in, in the context of, say, romantic relationship, you decide to have a, a, a reset where you both, you know, you, you go to some place together with minimal distractions to really immerse yourself in, in, in each other's presence and perhaps boredom and excitement and playfulness or all the different things that would happen if you were say 30 days in a tent in, in the wilderness, you know, living in, I don't know, I like camping. So it, I think I would go there before I would go to some like big fancy hotel on the beach in Mexico or something. But it, it's, it's just recognizing that we have to kind of, uh, break down the, the cobwebs, polish the mirror, you know, Get, get rid of the obstructions, face the, 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 the fidgety parts, the condition parts, the, the resistances that we all have to something we really want, but it's like, we have to build up the resistance so that when we let go, it's ecstatic, hmm. you know? So there, there's sort of a thing that I'm speaking to that I, I just want to make sure I, I don't forget to say. So here we are talking about training for like a decade at least, and then going and taking what you've learned, you know, in a, in a decade more, more or less, but you know, a sufficient amount of time to really like say, have your teacher go, now you should go and do this thing. Now you're ready to go and bleed into the scrolls because you're not making stuff up. You're refining and, and again, moving through boundaries and, you know, resistance and bad habits and the other stuff in, in a very relentless way, a very unwavering way. Mm. Right. Cause 
to say doing things from the inside out means you know the toolbox, you know the language, you know the paradigm. Because I, I meet people who hear stuff like this and they're like, yeah, man, you know, like I had this day I woke up once and started moving around and I think I want to teach it because I have this idea that everyone should do this thing because if we all pretend we're house cats with a certain amount of catnip, the world's going to be an amazing place. And, <clears throat> you know, you just sort of throw it together and off you go and you look around, the, call it the marketplace of spiritual practice and what percentage of stuff is just made up by people who've never trained in a tradition seriously enough to have their teacher say, now you go off and actually finish the job. So if you're listening to this and somehow this is inspiring you to go and make up catnip and cat play is the, the new, you know, we don't get rich quick on the spiritual marketplace. You notice you're, you're not helping. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're an opportunistic and you're, you're, you're taking away from the world's opportunity to access real traditional training like training capital t training that's been passed on for thousands of years but after you've done a decade at least of that sure go and make up catnip and cat play like whatever because at least you know what you're doing you call whatever you want yeah and it comes from that grounded coherent conscious <clears throat> steeped in tradition place yeah um just a quick aside like yeah if we look at the marketplace uh prior to even getting into some of this uh i guess training you could call it there is a lot of stuff that's kind of like, yeah, just a lot of things that, you know, in my past, I never would have been able to distinguish that as uh, real or fake or, or, you know, maybe not completely grounded in a tradition. Like it seemed like it would work. Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's really interesting kind of walking with you in this tradition to see like how much real training something like spirituality and real i mean like training the body training the mind and actual physical tangible like real science-based spirituality if i may say that mm -hmm. yeah i mean uh, I'm, I'm grateful to have learned things i have i like it with medicine to, to be a doctor and stuff is like hey wow these people from a thousand years ago you know, they were doing this thing and now we know why in the sense of what science can know. And it's always been my, my kind of hobby, like not to disprove the ancient traditions, but to challenge their, their understanding until I find out how to understand those practices or those paradigms through both the traditional lens and, and a modern kind of measurable causal, you know, hormone this, you know, alignment that. And as, as yet, I have not been able to poke a hole through any real solid tradition. And that's not, that's not my objective. It's just sort of a playful way of like, even if you went at this in a cynical way to try and knock them down, if you actually do them enough and recognize how they work in either way from a symbolic paradigm or a science paradigm, they work. But you have to do the work for them to work. Yep, definitely. Yeah. And that's why I, I teach the like the 49 day thing usually every few years, although sometimes I, for some reason right now, I'm getting the sense I want to start doing it four times a year, like 49 days for each season, you know, for, for people who, who actually, for whatever reason, are more interested in one or other season, or for people who actually might want to commit a year and do like a little rite of passage for each season, which relates to all of the you know, system orientations in Chinese medicine and Taoist practice as a kind of completion of your training, or maybe as a launch pad for a really thorough capacity, you know, to really begin training.
That's cool. So like every season, would you focus on like a specific like organ group and you could do anything, but, but definitely if, if I was to, to do four times a year, I think I would just like, okay, spring, there's these kinds of exercises. There's these kinds of diets. There's these kinds of, you know, you know, create the, the, the list of, uh, you know, conditions to apply yourself to cause it's training, which mm-hmm. is different than exercise, which is vastly different than just movement. Right. Right. And, and there, there, there is, I think if, and when I speak to this, I, you know, I can't see the listeners, but I, I, there's a part of me that kind of hopes that there's this slightly anticipatory excitement of like, I wonder what that would be like, like, who would I be? How would I feel? Well, I mean, how would my knees feel doing Tai Chi or something if I actually went through and restructured my body and, you know, my alignment and stuff in a coherent, precise, you know, way with someone who actually knows what they're talking about saying, this is the how, this is the why, this is how to be sure, you know? So that's why I'm passionate about this because it changed my life in a way and it, you know, shifted my uh, relationship with training and with teachers and, you know, kind of the performative side versus the more immersive inductive side of why we do this because modern culture is kind of a show-off culture. You know, a lot of martial arts, you know, it's if it isn't something that is flashy and big and woohoo, even though, say, funny stuff like TV violence, like movies, like the slow down big punches and stuff of uh what we perceive martial arts to look like i mean it's so ridiculously a caricature of uh what's really necessary or what's really going on that we almost identify now with an exaggerated externalized kind of circus performance which is fun if you love audiences and attention but how does that satisfy the internal rearrangement of everything that you are how you move how you feel, can feel, how deep into silence and stillness and beyond the self can you go? And when you're standing in front of people trying to get attention, how far beyond the self are you actually trying to get? Seems like it's the opposite direction. Are you trying to inflate the ego balloon so more people can see it? Yeah. And that's not wrong. It's just adolescent. It's adding. Yeah. And, you know, adolescent, you know, I think of like a peacock or, you know, look at me, look at my feathers. It's like, well, yeah, mating dances are cool, but and then what? I'm splitting together adding and adolescence. Yeah. Like, oh my God, it's right there. <laughs> yeah. So when we, we frame that without, you know, there's no sense of judgment here. It's just a sense of opportunity and, and uh, what, what is the diving board? What is the outcome? with respect to the experience of yourself as a self with your uh, yourself as a practitioner as a, a person with a skill set you know and and why wouldn't that be a necessary component to almost any of these things it's irrefutable yeah you know i mean from where i'm sitting yeah but uh, i mean when you look around in the kind of modern milieu of this it's like oh yeah well we're all you know we train two hours a week and you know it's kind of more like a social thing and you know you that there's there's no way to advance beyond the mundane mm-hmm. yeah you gotta like i call this whole process like turning around the titanic yeah it's like yeah it's a it's definitely a process and it requires momentum mm-hmm. and the momentum that we're facing right now for coming from the other direction is like it's like the titanic it's pretty big. yeah and that's inertia mm-hmm you know, so that, that's why I'm, I'm really passionate about this. And so one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation 
uh, on this on the podcast is to encourage people who are are on a path, people who have a practice, um, who kind of like the solo thing, maybe go off into the you know forest, beach, you know, rent a rent a hut in Costa Rica or something. I don't know, whatever gets you to that place where you 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 know you don't have to be alone. Although that's definitely for some traditions the thing to do. But you want to organize it around what it is that you aspire to um, refining, you know, polishing the mirror, you know, whatever it might be. And uh, although, you know, if you went on some big seven, eight week retreat and could train in whatever you're up to for eight hours a day, if that fits into the tradition you're training, that'd be amazing. But for a lot of people, and especially in modern life, it's probably more like an hour a day would would be the the thing that would fit into the the schedule um and and again if if the person was to organize it layer by layer week by week day by day and that kind of fractal you know everything has a a purpose and a meaning and a place within the process then you're you're going to fall into that and that's sort of the game with these things is you don't miss a day If you're profoundly sick, then if you miss a day, you have to go back three. But that kind of messes with what Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday can be and stuff. So uh, that's also why I think 49 days is because, you know, if there's seven weeks in a row where you're doing pretty well and, you know, you get through that, great. But it's always the, the game with 100 days or the 1,000 days. If you miss a day, then you're back three. So does that mean you keep training for those three in, days in between or you miss the one day? You add three more days. You add three more days. Okay. You know, just just in that sense of it's the inertia momentum thing. If you take your foot off the gas pedal, you're coasting. Right. Right. You don't have any grip on the road. You're not. You don't. Uh, you don't have traction. Mm -hmm. Right. And and that that's a part of the that liminal process of okay, climb the ladder, get to the end of the diving board, let go of who is afraid, dive into who is going to find out how swimming works. So when you're experiencing that 49 days, was there a certain day? Like, you know how there's that thing of 21 days to build a habit? Mm -hmm. Like, did you notice like halfway through, maybe like your ability to drop into these states was getting very like easy or? Well, I mean, it was kind of 24 seven. Mm. Although, I mean, I was physically sitting still on a bench or physically on my little leveled out spot doing martial arts. So it was pretty overt and there was nothing else to do. Right, because you're on a mountain in a hut. Yeah. I mean, no, no electricity, around. no people. Although there was this really big metal tub uh, and there was like a little pump well kind of water that I used to fill up and there was a, a little fire pit underneath of the metal tub that if you heated up enough water in there, and I did this three or four times when I was up there, uh, I got in this metal tub with a certain amount of silliness during lightning storms because I was up in the mountains and you're almost at like the level of the cloud layer watching the rain pouring down, sitting in a metal pot over a fire in the metaphoric crucible of transformation, just cooking, you know, and you're sitting on this little metal kind of like uh, woven together or wooden uh, thing so you wouldn't burn your skin sitting on the bottom of this metal tub. I think the tub was for like washing pigs or something, but yeah. it was out there. So the guy had built a little rock foundation and put it on there, the fire chimney. And that was like, I don't know, one of the best parts, honestly, in the sense of like just sitting back going, 
this is life. This is my life. I train. I sit in my tub. I watch the the cra crashing thunderstorms of summer in the mountains of British Columbia. And then I wake up and do it again. You know, so and I don't know if that imagery just popped into my head because it's a funny part of the story. But if we go back to what it would look like today, you know, for an individual modern life as a practice and wants to engage in it, like I said, pick seven weeks, give each week a context. If you can, give the seven days of the week a specific orientation to that context. So again, it's like a fractal. It just keeps going and repeating and unwinding and getting more specific, more refined, or more something. And I would always suggest starting with uh, the kind of practices you do, the ones that are the most familiar, the most enjoyable, the most like kind of have the mojo in them. That's kind of like the foundation of what you do but at least, at least one day a week, <laughs> he says, and whatever that voice is supposed to be, one day a week, pick the thing you'd like to do the least, because that's the thing that's going to teach you the most about something. Hmm. Cool. The other thing is, and this is, it's sort of obvious to say, but the funny thing about obvious things is, there's a lot underneath of them. Mm -hmm. Making a commitment for the sake of exploring commitment. Right, yeah. like a discipline. Yeah, but I mean, you could be studying beanbag juggling for 49 days. There's a part of us uh, as adults, becoming adults, you know, depending on where we are in life, and that's not an age thing. That's a growth thing. I know people in their 60s that are teenagers and people that are in their 20s who seem like elders. So um, when we commit to the experience and the consistency and, and the alignment with and the kind of grindy part of commitment for the sake of seeing if we are the one who can, who will, who is. Because if you can get through 49 days, you are now the one who is. capable of committing, capable of training, not just moving, not just exercising, not just pretending you're a cat on catnip or whatever, but like you're doing the thing for real now. And now you're, you could say touching in, in a way, and I'm going to go on a little bit of an aside maybe, but with a capacity of, um, authenticity. And let's just say, and this is kind of a, this is the funny aside. So sometimes um, I, I often used to, when I was teaching like Tai Chi retreats and stuff like that, or martial arts retreat is, uh, let's all do this practice and playfully pretend that we're going to channel the most famous person in this style. Nice. Right. So let's say I'm going to do Tai Chi and I'm going to pretend I'm being channel I'm channeling Chan Sun Fung and I'm going to do the thing and um, why not? And then the idea is that the more you train like they train, the more you might get from a, and this is a Taoist ontology thing about uh, Shun and spirit and Hun and the collective unconscious, but specific to you. And the more you train a system, the more you lure uh, in a way the Hun, the collective unconscious of that skill set to move through you in your practice, to move through you in your dreams, to guide you. So if you're doing your 49 days and you become like an antenna of coherence 
or whatever your skill set is, whatever you're practicing, whatever you're training, on that subtle ontology level, you're now inviting all beings who come into being and have come into being through that practice and perhaps come to profound skillfulness or maybe more importantly, profound realization through that practice. Now you're on team training, team coherence, if it's Tai Chi or martial arts or what I say, juggling beanbags. Um, you're, you're now luring the capacity to be one of those kinds of beings. And if there is such a paradigm in which, you know, spirit moves through and guides us uh, in the way we need to go based on what we're doing, if you don't show up, perhaps the people on the other side of that equation, you know, the people who've passed on, I'm telling a funny story here. I don't know if I believe any of this, but you're kind of showing them that you're that kind of antenna. You're, you're that kind of being. So now what is moving through all of that can move through you. Whereas if you're in the audience kind of like, well, you know, kind of like the, you know, got the shirt and, you know, went to a workshop once or something, you know, notice that there's a difference between being in the audience and being, um, I guess the conductor of the orchestra. And you can't really be the conductor unless you become a really good musician at a few different instruments. Mm -hmm. You know, so that, that that's sort of the, the process. So pick something you love, pick something you don't like so much. You know, make, make it uh, about commitment for commitment's sake. And all the little parts of your ego that, you know, I just, just popped into my head. Imagine you're, you know, you have a memory of in grade four when you told your mom that, oh, I got a stomachache, I can't go to school because something at school was making you nervous. That puts a hole in a part of our courage because we kind of like snuck out a little slippery feet sideways and didn't want to deal with something. And you, know, you need to duck, duck, better than taking it in the face. But if in the past you identify with yourself as someone, you know, worst case scenario, I can just duck. At a certain point in life, that's not going to help you. It's actually going to hurt you or hinder you. Especially as you get older. Yeah. And especially, you know, parent, children, job, self-employed or whatever, you know, pandemic shows up, you know, when you're challenged, if, if, you know, your default setting is dock or drink or, you know, get high or something, notice that you have as yet, that doesn't make you a bad person. It just means as yet you haven't trained yourself to move through things, right? Whatever they may be. But when, once you're that person, you're that person forever. You can't undo that. You know, so that's why I would encourage people to, to create that for themselves and kind of make it a thing. And, and again, if you can't do an all day thing, make it an hour. Now I would encourage people who want to do this to do it in the morning. There's a, a part of our physiology, uh, that creates something called neuroplasticity, which isn't just about your brain and memory. It's about your entire neurophysiology, which includes like the whole gut brain and uh, your proprioceptive nervous system that helps you move, especially if you're interested in like martial arts or Qigong where balance and agility and proprioception and stuff are the, I don't know, the, the foundation you build all of your actual stuff you do, depending on your style on. So when we do things in the morning and we do things that are challenging on as many different dimensions as we can, we maximize neuroplasticity. And that's true from the you know time you're a kid up until like you're in the last probably few weeks of being alive, you know, in the sense of seventies, eighties and nineties, depending on how you age. 
because we used to have the in medicine we used to have the understanding that around 25 your brain was grown it was done that's it you're this you know good luck see you later you know done off the factory line you go <laughs> you know and now we realize you know if, if you actually do a few things you can actually keep regenerating the brain and a part of that is uh also known to be affected by sitting in silence so you can make your morning kind of a bit of a movement practice a bit of a sitting in silence practice uh, you could do coherent things like balance practice or singing toning anything that just brings different elements of your embodied experience and practice into collaboration you know mm -hmm. i mean i'm making this up right now but imagine part of your practice was to stand on one foot on a ball holding onto a couple of free weights as you tried to do wave hands uh, which is a tai chi you know kind of cyclic gesture while singing an aria in another language that you don't actually speak but you're trying to get the intonation and pronunciation just right now that's madness i'm being playful here <laughs> don't do that <laughs> you'll probably fall on your head and get hurt i'm sure i would but like just to, to sort of bring up what neuroplasticity is, neuroplasticity likes challenge but it likes a kind of random weird collaboration of different systems and in, uh, in, in the way the body and mind work to to really kind of upregulate challenge because otherwise we hibernate so i want to give just everyone an example of the opposite of this and maybe some of us have experienced this. So imagine you wake up like you do every day and you go to the bathroom because that's usually the first thing we do every day. And since you're in the bathroom, you might as well just have a seat and grab your phone like you do every day. And then you sit there for way longer than is probably good for much of you, especially your perennial floor muscles and core tone and breathing muscles and pouch out and just blah and sit there scrolling on dopamine and cortisol and consequence and what if and anticipatory kind of just angsty feelings every day and then you leave the bathroom and go and sit in your kitchen and have your magic coffee machine make your cortisol driving steam <laughs> bean water <laughs> do its magic and then maybe you go and you you uh do your emails or whatever so as long as you do that in the same order for more than several days in a row and i'm not making this up i'm speaking as a like clinical professor who trains doctors your brain goes into a hibernative energy conservation protocol clearly creativity focus and you know mem memory and associative thinking are necessary because every day you get up and do exactly the same thing you biochemically encounter exactly the same kind of cortisol dopamine caffeine boredom only sit and stare at the screen sit and drive your car sit and you know type you know way things at your office is, as an example that's that that's the biggest challenge we have today you either wake up and go back into hibernation and atrophy every part of your adaptive physiology on every level or you challenge yourself and regenerate and grow and rebuild and renew and become your birthright potential of oh my god humans are amazing it's like a red pill blue pill discussion here every day yeah. right every day so it i mean when you look at the, the, there's a bunch of books written by you know other doctors about this the morning magic something and the ritual this and <clears throat> a bunch of other stuff that you, i know it's probably about 10 years ago when this really became a paradigm shift for uh, medicine and and fitness uh you know other things like that it's like get up and do randomly weird challenging things for at least 20 minutes every day 
and you see people like within days and I've done this many times with people within days the lights are back on in the mind the body's circulations change everything's changed immune systems changed throw in some fasting throw in some other things that are kind of puzzles to solve and you're you're on your way to your birthright potential on every level of your experience and your capacity and then again of martial arts qigong or whatever your skill set your 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 ability your raw ability to stand there say as a martial artist and actually face the proverbial music of of you know combat competition or something you know or if you're in the military actual combat i mean that's that's the thing and it's not an accident that every morning in the military you get up and have to do a whole bunch of pt obstacle courses weird stuff they figured this out a very long time ago <laughs> so i have a i'm gonna try and word this in a good way here so with something like a qigong practice or like a meditative stillness sitting practice uh, there must be a fine balance there of like you know i guess pushing through things it's like so let's say for example on a 49 day rite of passage and there's a day maybe you're not quite feeling it, you could say. Mm -hmm. So what would you do in a situation like that? Would you really just like kind of push through it? Is it more of a relaxation into it? Like what's, have you had an experience like that? Cause like, I feel like that's like a, it's an interesting question there. Yeah, that's why it's training. Training, yeah. training doesn't negotiate. Mm. Moving. Yeah. You know, maybe today, maybe not. Exercise, oh yeah, I'll do it tomorrow or, you know, I'll just do a bit, you know, maybe a couple hours from now or whatever. And it's not like those things are just like somehow less or just wishy-washy or whatever. It's just not the same relationship. And that relationship of not negotiating brings up a certain potential, a certain gur and purr of like, not playing around, mm. bring it on, gonna show up here. Seven weeks, I mean, I don't know. I'm in my mid fifties, seven weeks just went by thinking about seven weeks, right? And when we're younger, time seems a lot slower. So seven weeks seems like, oh my God, seven weeks in a row. It's like, you know, when, when you're through it, it's like, that didn't seem like very long at all. Mm -hmm. Right. But every, every morning can seem like I have to climb Everest again. What am I doing? Yeah. So it's just framing, right. framing. This is training. I mean, there, there is an outcome that's only possible if I stay committed to commitment. Right. So there's, there's two ways to go about this. So when I, when I teach these as, as sort of cycles with people and usually I'm trying to bring in more, uh, uh, colleagues and other instructors so that people can do their seven weeks. And it's not just me every morning going blah, 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 and do this and try that. Mm -hmm. uh, I can bring in other people to, to kind of help, help, help keep it neuroplastically interesting because completely different person, completely different thing, uh, at least once a week to try and make sure it's, you know, mixing it up in that way. Um, so when I'm usually doing this, I usually try and start it like, okay, there's seven weeks, there's seven little paradigms we're going to look at. So every morning we get up and we check in with that paradigm. We check in with reviewing what we've learned, how to do it, how to do it right. Maybe check in with people around details. Then there's some breath work to make sure we're in the body, uh, on a state level, not just on a move the body around like a horse, but like you're on the inside instead of the outside, bleeding into the scroll. Breathwork will bring you onto the inside almost quicker than anything, because especially with meticulous, like old shaman breathwork and stuff, not just 
what, what does Wim Hof say? Get high on your own supply. You know, if you lie and pant on the ground, you're going to get weird. But we're not trying to get weird. We're trying to get coherent. Mm-hmm. Right? So when we, you're training a kind of breath work that uh, demands coordination and body awareness and, you know, membrane awareness and t- timing and heartbeats and stuff, you know, you know you're, you're like a fighter pilot. You're, you're not just hanging, you know, you're, you're really doing something. So, you know, check in really coherent breath work, a bit of stillness and silence. And then usually I do a neuroboosting session, which is kind of the point of the neuroplasticity. Uh, and then after that, maybe there's like a conversation about a, a topical teaching or conversation or funny story that's, you know, from the ancient traditions around the world that touches people in the meaning sense. So that's every day has kind of like three or four things that are going on that, that I usually do when I'm doing it. But when we go into that neuro boosting part, which is something I'm going to trademark someday or something because I'm building an app around it. You have a bowl <clears throat> and in that bowl, you have a whole bunch of cut up little pieces of paper with a whole bunch of things you know how to do or you're learning how to do and you're going to do as soon as you pull it out of the bowl. And then you have a bowl next to that that's empty. And then every week you have way more than enough things to do for 20 minutes a day for seven days or six days in a row. Cause usually one day we do more of a kind of more community orientated kind of collaboration. You wake up in the morning, you do your check-in on your own or say you're doing the, the course with uh, me and all of the colleagues I gather together for this year, which is going to start, I think the second week in February. Uh, and that's what I'll be doing is I'll be standing there with a the bowl and I'll pull out you know, three or four things. And maybe there'll be a couple of things that we'll do because of a progress of, of something we're actually training to, to do, but the rest of the things we'll do will be completely random because it's the randomness, which is the magic sauce of neuroplasticity. Because the more predictable, the more hibernative the mind is, the more efficient the mind wants to be. Don't need to think about that. It always happens the same way. Right. right. Yeah, that's, so, yeah, pretty... Yeah, subtle. Yeah, I mean, you've been doing that. I love when you put it up on social media. You'll pull out your little pieces of paper. You'll put them on a you know nice background. You'll take a picture of it, and upload it to the the group that we're all a part of, and everyone like just okay, that's my practice. Ravi just gave us our you know our neuroplasticity morning boost. You know, and off you go. You know? Yeah, well, I'm gonna be going back to that probably after this conversation. <laughs> I think I've been hibernating a little bit for the winter, a little bit. Yeah, and this this is a thing, you know, because I'm kind of the, the doctor nerd, I guess, in 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 the canoe. There's a a peptide in the brain that that's uh, activated by exercise, activated by breath work, activated by a lot of things called BDNF or brain drive neurotropic factor. It's actually lowest in winter because in winter humans have typically hibernated. To the degree of like you know stay in a hut and you know chew on beef jerky or whatever until spring comes along so if you want to have neuroplasticity in the winter you have to do everything you can to upregulate bdnf and if you're focused mm-hmm. on longevity especially longevity of the brain you, you can't cheat the way the universe works if you're not doing something that measurably upregulates that that system in the body you cannot improve neuroplasticity in winter but I could also say this, you know, doing longevity medicine, that's the magic sauce all year. It's just way, way more important in winter. And in fact, it's kind of like the way to slow down the inertia or the momentum, pardon me, of aging. 
because aging wants to put you six feet under the ground. It's like gravity's always pushing you into the center of the earth. It's not like it's against you. It's just got a job to do and it's doing it. Mm-hmm. But if you want to move in the other way in winter, every morning you have to, at least for a few weeks, get up and say, no, 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 not going to turn my brain from a grape to a raisin. I want to keep full grape. In fact, I want to orchard of grapes and you know not just wait and see or atrophy and only in passivity and um and just that that kind of uh habituation because your body goes into hibernation if you keep doing the same thing every day and i'm not making that up i mean look it up hmm. very good mm-hmm. so yeah for, for this year we're gonna be bringing in uh hopefully a guest instructor at least once a week to, to teach the neuroboosting part or whatever they want to do with it. And that'll be novel for everyone because I have no idea what these people are going to do. I haven't even finished getting the list figured out for the, for this one. Uh, my partners agreed to do a yoga class, uh, probably Friday mornings. So I could just sleep in maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that out loud, did I? Anyway, just kidding. <laughs> and um, I'll be flailing in the corner trying to keep up with yoga. But anyway. Uh, that, that way the, 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 there's just more faces. Cause that's also a part of neuroplasticity is called neuroception. It's how we interact and, and mirror people. Cause mm-hmm. when you mirror people, you actually activate what are called mirror neurons, which are a big part of neuroplasticity, but they're also a big part of regaining or experiencing trust, like on the animal instinctual level. So if you've been through an experience in your life or say you grew up in a fairly challenging environment, that kind of trauma, its biggest wound in people, again, from a clinical point of view, is a loss of trust in relating, a a loss of trust in individual people, a loss of trust in yourself, and sometimes even a loss of trust in trusting. And that's like an animal instinctual free state, right? I'm alone in this, I'm the lone wolf, I'm the you know, sad loner warrior against the, I mean, how, how many of our movies are like some know, retired cop or, you know, spec ops dude who's, you know, or woman suddenly like reactivated to go and solve the problems. And it's the lone, you know, somehow magically trained against some nefarious foreign army of people who apparently can't shoot. <laughs> <laughs> You know, talking about John Wick here now, or I mean, I I was just thinking like the Bruce Willis movies or something. So anyway, so that's something that uh, we 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 glorify, but we glorify the thing that keeps us separate. Whereas if we wake up every morning and have a you know our class, and there's at least a few different faces in the week, um, and you're mirroring what those people are doing, you're actually rebuilding the structure of your physical brain that deals with connecting to people, reading and understanding body language, facial expression, tone of voice. The part of us that allows us relational intimacy and connection and the kind of, if nothing else, being relaxed around strangers or people you're just meeting, or you're going to go to a job interview. You're not like freaking out because you're the lone warrior hoping you can John Wick kill the three people with the pencil you know, or whatever. You're like, okay, I mean, I'm here to interview my interviewer about whether or not I want to commit to this company as much as I'm hoping to give me a job because your innate sense of self is I belong. You know, so there's obviously a lot of things that can be done with this, but that, that's, that's what we're hoping to do uh, this spring, if not four times over the next year, 
is to support people in that. But you don't need to do that, you know, in, in the Taoist paradigm or the Qigong, you know, paradigm. You can do this in whatever way you want uh, on your own. It's just, mm-hmm. you have to commit to commitment. You have to make it about jumping off of some kind of challenging diving board, metaphorically, about what you practice. And then 49 days. And, you know, if you decide to do this on your own, after that 49 days, I'd love to get an email. Like, what'd you do? How'd it go? What'd you learn? Feeling younger, feeling fit, feeling perky. Yeah, well, after this conversation, I'm going to recheck a few things in my morning routine for sure. Um, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what that's about. So there's a lot of opportunities for people. And uh, hopefully I'm, I guess, more than anything, encouraging people like yourself and me and everybody else. Training is not exercise. Training is not movement. As much as we all love the, in the Taoist paradigm, the chill man, flow with the Tao, leaf on the ocean, xiu Tao, the actual Taoist practice is like warrior training. Mm-hmm. I mean, go back to the previous episode and I mean, it's a couple hours long, but notice the Zen-like warrior commitment you have to make moment by moment to move through and beyond your condition to go itself that takes training. Maybe we should have done these two podcasts backwards in the sense of maybe do a 49 day thing to really wake up your mojo and get your thing going and then commit to like, you know, Zen or alchemic practice or the apophatic stuff. And yeah. Either or, I think they both work in both directions. Well, we're committed now because of how we recorded them. But I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying for Unless people... you want to edit it with for, 11, 12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm just saying for the people who've listened to both, like, n- notice one is the other. Mm-hmm. You know, who is the one meditating? A trained meditator or someone in the audience? Hmm. Cool. So February, we get to go on a deep dive. Yeah, another canoe every day. Uh, and I love it because now I'm like, as much as I love to sleep in, especially in winter, it's like okay, now I'm gonna bright-eyed, bushy-tailed every morning. You know, mm-hmm. set up camera, bowl, lists, things. Yeah, so it's gonna allow you a greater capacity to rebuild all that as well. Because yeah. like neuroplasticity kind of works in both ways, right? It's like, in the sense of like, you know, if we, if we ha- have that randomness, we're going to keep building all those new connections, but it's like that one day we stop, it's like, well, now we're just neuro, like, I guess neuro, it'd be neuro anti-plastic that we're just doing. Just hibernating. Yeah. Well, hibernative, <clears throat> I guess it's a better term. Yep. Well, we call it neural rigidity or neural atrophy. Mm-hmm. The brain's so interesting. Yeah. And then you, it's, it's, it's determining you before you, it's kind of like reaching into the, what's that? Um, I guess red pill, blue pill kind of thing. You're reaching into the matrix and changing the matrix before you wake up into it. So now you're, you're free again. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, that was, you know, that was very informative. Uh, I think sometimes, uh, I'll speak with my experience uh, with having a practice. Sometimes I have this feeling of like, oh yeah, my practice is just going to carry me. 
but there's uh there's definitely um i think you were talking about a crossroads of a shift of like okay there's the kind of going along with it and then there's the carving your path Mm -hmm. and this is yeah this conversation has been very enlightening and in shedding light on that Mm -hmm. uh real training focus uh so yeah i really appreciate that and i think our viewers are going to appreciate that shift Mm -hmm. as well and there's nothing wrong with resting residing in your practice to allow it to ferry you across you know a period of time or through some challenges if that's what you need 